from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's our conversation exploring everything related to work and the rest of your life, family, community, society, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. Now I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And if you visit totalleadership.org, you can find information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. It can be done. Check it out. Also, I'm happy to say I've just released an audio course based on total leadership. It's called Four Way Wins. It's on Himalaya Learning, which is an audio learning platform, big library of great courses there. You can listen to my course and others, Himalaya.com slash wins. If you enter the promo code wins at checkout, you get your first 14 days free. Hope to see you there. New episodes of this show, Work and Life, premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me. I'm at Stu Friedman. Well, today we've got um, a really important conversation. Uh, You probably heard the expression that it's not what you know, but who you know when it comes to getting a job. And in many cases, that's true. It's not fair, but it's often the way it happens. So how do you navigate the unwritten rules and so many of the unwritten rules at the start of your career? And how do you help young people who are just starting out, especially those who might come from the margins of the mainstream of society? Um, So today's conversation is not just about career advice. It's also about inclusion um, and how we bring into the whole of our world, uh, all different kinds of people and deal with people who have uh, particular needs that are different from those uh, in, in the mainstream, which is a part of what we like to focus on here on our show. Uh, today's guest is the author of a book that, well, shares the secrets that he learned, not just um, from his research, but from his own experience, um, things that aren't taught in college courses mostly. I want to hear more about why not in college courses and maybe some that are uh, teaching how to how to make it a level playing field for those who are on the inside track and, and, and as well as those who are outsiders. I am delighted to introduce Gorik Eng, whose book is called The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right. Gorik, Welcome to Work and Life. Stu, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Gorik Ng is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School. We won't hold that against him. <laughs> and he's now a career advisor at Harvard College, specializing in coaching first-generation low-income students. Uh, and it's really that focus that compelled me to want to have him on the show. Uh, he's a uh, also a researcher with the Managing the Future of Work project at Harvard, and we're going to be talking about that in the second part of our show. Uh, The Unspoken Rules is now offered to employees at companies like IBM, uh, Invesco, Cigna, Qualcomm, GE, a bunch of others. Harvard Business School has also given the Unspoken Rules to every 2021 MBA student to give them an edge in their internships and full-time jobs. All right, Gorik. Well, why did you write this book? It was a long journey, and I would say it came from both the the head and the heart, where from the heart, I, as you mentioned in your very generous intro, uh, I was the first in my family to graduate from college to actually pursue a higher education to begin with. And I found myself wondering, well, me too, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yes, but please Solidarity continue. Solidarity there. Yes. It, it, it actually wasn't until I was in my senior year of college that I even realized that this term FGLI, first gen low income, was even a thing. And in higher ed circles, this is now becoming a term that's, that's often in, in 
in the dialogue with, for, for good reason. Mm-hmm. But over the course of growing up and finding myself in these privileged spaces, I found myself wondering, wow, one, I'm a bit of an outlier here. The son of a working class single mother who left school when she was 12 years old to support her brothers through school. I had gotten lucky and met someone from another school who had applied to Yale University and had gotten in. This individual ended up coaching me through what I think of now as the unspoken rules of, Mm -hmm. in that case, applying to college. Who was that person? uh, Her name is Sandy. We're still in touch today. She is a graduate of Yale University, and she is uh, a friend and mentor. I met her. She's a what? uh, She's a friend and mentor. A friend and mentor. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, She helped me appreciate that when you go on to these admissions websites, the criteria may be the written rules, but there are a whole set of unwritten rules around how you tell your story, around how you ask for recommendation letters, around how you navigate this entire process that's unspoken and that's handed down from mentor to mentee, in my case, or from parent to child, if you have someone in your household who can pass these lessons down. Mm. And I started realizing this when I arrived at Harvard, but I realized even more when I transitioned from school to work, where the ideas that get implemented aren't necessarily the best ideas. The people who get promoted aren't necessarily the most competent. They're the people who have what I think of as certainly hard skills and soft skills, but there's a third category in my view, which is navigational skills. Mm -hmm. And that moves me over to the motivation from the head, which is this realization that so much of what determines who gets in and who gets ahead, who is deemed a high performer versus a mediocre performer, is really a matter of how you navigate systems and ambiguity and people and politics. And so much of this, actually all of this, frankly, until I'd like to think the book came around, is learned in one of two ways. One, through mentors or parents, or two, through trial and error, by getting yelled at, by getting put on to a performance improvement plan by being told that you're not yet promotable and you've got to wait that extra year or that maybe this isn't a good fit for you. There's a lot of code for what it may look like or sound like to confront some of these unspoken rules and not know why you're stumbling. So when I started thinking about, well, that's awfully inefficient to have talent going through so much of life through trial and error. That's not great for the individual, even worse and equally bad for organizations that are trying to ramp up their people more quickly, have more of their people stay, have more of their people be productive. So I thought, wow, maybe this is an opportunity to, in a cliche way, sort of do well and do good. Tell me what you learned from your mother's experience, because she was your original sponsor, mentor, (laughs) uh, you know, your world early on. Um, her story seems, sounds quite remarkable. What were the key lessons that you hold now as you look back on that, on your youth and, and what she had to do to um, navigate the world that she was in, in order to um, help you to grow into the person you've become? I'd say a lot of it revolves around hard work. And this has both its pluses and its minuses mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as your intro alluded to where hard work was just a given. I mean, Mm -hmm. working long hours in the sewing machine factory, knowing that monotony, (laughs) Mm. being comfortable, maybe not comfortable. I actually don't even know what what term to use here, but uh, confronting monotony and seeing seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Optimism maybe is, is the word, uh, as I think back to, to what she had passed down to me. But when it comes to, to, to this notion of hard work, certainly it's been the basis for so much of my life. But as I've uncovered in these unspoken rules and also in this cliche way, it's not about working hard, it's about working smart. And as I think about the contrast between the work that my mom did in the sewing machine factory and contrast that to the type of work that so many of us are doing in 2021, which is knowledge work, it's night and day where it's easy to discern how competent my mom was in the sewing machine factory. You just have to evaluate how, how tall her 
stack of sewn garments are, how quickly she's churning out sewn garments, how well her seams look in those garments. It's easy yeah, to you discern. Can, you can, right, exactly. It's, you can count, you can, you can assess errors very quickly. Um, and so why does, why does that present a different kind of challenge for the, the knowledge worker today than what your mother confronted in some way her the simpler world was in some way easier for her to compete in and to manage is that what you're saying or are you saying something else Gork? yeah i would say it's certainly more complex the 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 knowledge worker world where it's much more difficult to tie inputs to outputs where i think of output as how much work you do and how quality how high quality that work is and then there's inputs, which is how hard it looks like you're working, how confidently you speak up, how often you're seen at your desk in the pre-COVID days, maybe in the digital work from home era, it's whether you're online on instant messenger and responding promptly. All of those are inputs. They're, they're proxies for what I think of as the three C's, which are competence, commitment, and compatibility, commitment in particular, which is... I can't read your mind, so I don't know how hard you're working, how intensely you're working, but I can use proxies, imperfect proxies, <laughs> admittedly, yeah. mm -hmm. to discern what I think of as, as these outputs. But in the case of my mom, you would not find her having water cooler conversations at work. Her ability to small talk on the factory floor was not necessarily correlated with whether she would get hired and fired, promoted and not. Mm -hmm. Certainly when you want to rise up to positions of management, it was very much, and it is very much a matter of who you know and your social and reputational capital, but very different if you're working in teams, working on long duration projects for which it's hard to discern your daily output Yep. and where quality is subjective and less objective. Yeah. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Gorik Eng, and he's a career advisor at Harvard College. And we're talking about his wonderful new book. It's super practical. And if there's a, a young person in your life who's just starting out in their career, they need to read this book. It's called The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right. Very clear, very practical based on his 500 plus interviews and a lot of experience, including personal experience. And we're going to get to what some of the, um, the big ideas are. Um, but I just have to stay a little bit longer on what you learned from your mother. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, as you saw her every day doing what she was doing, you're thinking about that now from the perspective of your life as it is, <clears throat> what's, what's the thing that, that you hold on to most uh, in your head, in your heart. Mm -hmm. The thing I hold on to is, is what I, what I hold on to and, and it's more of a mindset and it's the mindset of things may not always work out the first time. In fact, as I think back to my history, nothing's worked out the first time. <laughs> I, I, every I'm laughing job because I can relate. I can totally relate. And I think most listeners can as well. But please continue. As I think back to every job I've gotten, I've been on the wait list. And then I've gotten off that wait list. Or I've had to apply a second time. Harvard Business School, I applied twice. Jobs I've had, I've applied twice. Projects that I've wanted to get on. I didn't get it the first time. I had to navigate my way there in the second, third, fourth attempt sometimes. And I think what my mom helped me appreciate is that in her situation, she, she, kept, she kept moving. Um, I, I can't think of a single time when she was complaining. She was not a complainer. And as I think about the type of person that I would aspire to be, it, it's that type of person. Never, never, never give up, as Winston <laughs> Churchill said. Uh, yeah, well, when you're in, you know, challenging circumstances, I mean, that's, well, that's inspiring uh, to have that as a model. All right, so 
Um, I, I want to return to the to your story and how it informs you know what you have put together here. But I wonder if you could give listeners just a, a quick overview of what what the big ideas are here um, that they could um, that they can anticipate learning from the the 500 plus interviews you've done with people at all stages of their careers and what you found were you know the, the key solutions and then um we'll, we'll dig into some of them that are of particular interest to me so please uh give us give us the quick overview of what the the main solutions are that you focus on here the main framework in the book is a framework that i call the three c's which stand for competence commitment and compatibility and this was the result of me taking a step back from my 500 plus interviews and asking myself, okay, I've talked to people in construction, in nursing, in technology, in insurance, in finance, in law, in medicine. What are, what's the lowest common denominator? What's the common characteristic that managers are looking for in their employees? What makes for a, a high performer, a top performer at work? What makes for a high potential? And when I took a step back from all of that, I started realizing that it's the ability to convince the people around you, your clients, customers, managers, coworkers, your job, all of our jobs, it's to convince the people around us to answer yes to three questions. Question one is, can you do this job well? Which is the question of, are you competent? Question two is, are you excited to be here? Which is the question of, are you committed? And finally, it's, do we get along? Which is, are we compatible? So are you competent? Are you committed? And are you compatible? And I think of these three C's as existing on a Venn diagram mm -hmm. where the unspoken challenge that all of us face in our day jobs, even when we're getting a job, actually, especially so, it's to convince the people around us that we are in fact competent, committed, and compatible. And that looks and sounds different depending on whether you're in a meeting, you're in a phone call, you're showing up on your first day, you're having a one-on-one -on -one with your manager. That's the North Star that these high performers are aspiring to and have landed on. Mm -hmm. And you, you write a lot about you know, how all of this plays out in the context of uh, you know, pandemic life and, and a uh, explosion of activity in remote um, remote connections and remote work. Um, and, and I want to get into that. Uh, I wonder if you could give us an example though, of like what you glean from your research and how you guide people with respect to building and sustaining relationships, uh, from the very start. Cause I think it's that compatibility piece that many people are blindsided by because most people think that they're likable and good people and, uh, and they inflate their own value in the, in the world uh, and don't see how other people could perceive them as somehow anything other than wonderful to be around. Uh, so how, how do you help people, especially those who are still, you know, learning who they are um, of course, we all are. We're all on that journey forever. I'm 69 <laughs> years old. I'm still trying to figure it out. And I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, so it never stops. But, you know, when you're 22, it's a lot, it's a lot harder. So what guidance do you offer about that? Yeah, the framework that I offer in my book is one that I call the relationship ladder, which is to say that building relationships is almost like climbing up a ladder one rung at a time, where the bottom most rung is the rung of strangers. And most people just by definition in the world are strangers to us. We don't, there are more people that we don't know than people we do know. The challenge is to elevate people who are in stranger status to acquaintance status. These are the people that you may have exchanged eye contact with in the hallway, maybe open the door to, maybe been on the same email thread as, maybe been in the same meeting. And it's just a matter of, saying hello or breaking the ice or asking, how was your weekend? Or how did that project go? Or great job on that presentation the other day. Or I had a question for you about this. I heard from so-and-so that you're the subject matter expert on this. Would you have a few minutes to, to share your insights on this and that topic? And then from acquaintance status, you 
have an opportunity to then elevate people to ally status. And these are the people that maybe amplifying your comments and meetings, maybe keeping an eye out for opportunities for you, maybe have the ear of someone who's influential in the workplace and can help amplify your comment and maybe whisper your ideas to the ear of someone influential. One step above ally status is mentor status. And I think of mentors as people who know something that you don't know, which in my view, lowers the bar for who can be a mentor. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but mm. in an organization, then above mentors, you have sponsors. These are the people who have the, the power and the influence and certainly the job title to bang the table and say, we should give this promotion to so-and-so. I trust them with my life. And when I think of building relationships in the workplace, I think of it really being a challenge of elevating people one rung at a time. Mm-hmm. And when I speak to, to early career professionals about this, there's always this anxiety around, everyone's telling me to find a mentor. What does it mean to find a mentor and how do I yeah. even begin? Mm-hmm. And my response to that is bring people up. Mm. And so what does this look like on your first day? It's introducing yourself to everyone on the team. It's, but I'm an introvert and I don't like to do that. And I was taught that that's rude (laughs) in in my family, in my culture. So I can't really, I don't know how to do that. Gork, you're asking me to do something that I just never learned how to do, man. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you aren't my, aren't my brains and my, my, my talents enough. Shouldn't people recognize that I am a valued asset to this team based on my (laughs) training and my certifications. I mean, come on. What does all this social political bullshit have to do with anything real? (laughs) You know, it's, it's fair pushback. I would say, I would respond by saying that there are five forms of capital. When we think of capital, we think of time and money, which are certainly the, the common forms of capital we look to, but in the form of, in the context of career building, career capital, there are three additional ones. One is human capital, which is what you know and can do, which is what you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. But then there are two other ones, which is one social capital, which is who you know, and then reputational capital, which is who knows you and what they know you for. And hopefully it's something positive, of course. Mm-hmm. And so it's really a matter of playing all those cards right in the workplace that is required to unlock opportunity to build trust, to rise up through the ranks, or at the very least, not be stressed if, uh, if, if rising up may not be an ambition of yours. And there are th- ways that you can learn the, these, these skills, and it, and it takes a lifetime to master them, but you can always learn more, that's for sure. And, and you have written very, very cogently about how to do that. What makes it especially challenging for first-gen low-income, for FGLI, as you noted, you know, the acronym, what makes it particularly challenging for those kinds of folks in college life and then beyond? Uh, and, and, and how do you speak to them? How do you help them? When it comes to, I would say that the college experience very much mirrors the, the workplace experience. There are two sides of the same coin or sort of two stages in a longer continuum where one obstacle is awareness that there are even these unspoken rules. So as I think back to my, to my experience, and now that I'm a career advisor to first-gen low-income students, I see all the time, for lack of a better description, almost this, this, if I can use the word naive, maybe naive faith that, that education and career building is akin to walking up to a vending machine slipping in a quarter and out popping a a bag of potato chips or something where all I need to do is show up to class. All I need to do is get a good grade on this assignment. All I have to do is click submit in this job application. All I have to do is show up to work on time. Those are table stakes. That's the price of admission. What determines who gets ahead and who doesn't revolves around so many of what's unspoken and unwritten. And in the context of higher education, we see that certainly a lot where, as I think, and maybe I'll toss this back to you as a question, Stu, when I talk to students, graduates of, of college, uh, of a college experience, and I ask them, what do you remember? 
it's the relationships. Certainly, I hope they learn something from class. I, I, I'd like to think I remember a thing or two from college. But what you take away from the college experience is so much more than what, what you absorb through the classroom, what is conveyed through a textbook. And that's often not communicated, especially since simply getting into college is a big deal. And for someone who is a trailblazer in their household, there's this faith that I've done what no one in my family has been able to do. I will naturally go farther than where my, my family has been able to go. But in order yes. to get there, the unspoken rule is you're going to have to do more by showing up to recruiting events, by building relationships proactively behind the scenes before you even click that submit button mm. on, on that application. Well, we're going to have to take a short break here. Uh, but when we come back, I want to pick up on this theme of how you help people overcome that naivete and, and their faith in a meritocracy that isn't <laughs> true, that isn't real or isn't the full story. Um, and just to briefly answer your question, before we go to break, when I was in college a million years ago, I majored in drugs and music um, <laughs> and, you know, somehow managed to get good grades. I really don't know how, but mostly what I remember are lessons learned, you know, while uh, being with friends, playing music and uh, in altered states of consciousness. Um, <laughs> so we, we can talk more about that if you're interested, Gork, but you're probably not. Uh, stay with us, folks. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue the conversation with Gork Ang about his wonderful book, The Unspoken Rules. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. I'm Stu Friedman, your host, and I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. We're dedicated to helping people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of their lives. I have been a Wharton faculty member since 1984, well before my guest was born, I'm certain. He is Gorik Eng, a career advisor at Harvard College. We're talking about his wonderful new book, it's The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right, that has particular relevance for really for all young people starting out, but especially for those who are on the margins and in our current um, moving to a new order of work from all kinds of remote locations, et cetera. Uh, we're going to, we're going to get into that now. Um, so let's pick up Gorik on this idea of, you know, the naivete or the belief in a meritocracy or, okay, I'm the first kid in my family and my community to make it, you know, into college. And here I am, you know, in, in your case at Harvard at an elite institution. So I'm, I'm good. I'm done. Uh, I'm here. I'm, I'm arrived. Uh, now the world is, is my oyster. Um, why is, why is, well, how is it that you help your, um, your, your advisees, uh, the people that you mentor to overcome the naivete or the, the, you know, the lack of full vision that they don't, that they suffer from uh, compared to their uh, colleagues, their, their classmates, their peers, who many of whom are elites in society and have learned these lessons, these unspoken rules at the dinner table or at the country club. Yeah. The first step is to show what the divergence looks like between what I think of as student A and student B. Student A is someone who knows these unspoken rules and is able to navigate their way from where they are to where they want to go effectively and, and efficiently. And student B is someone who maybe doesn't know what they don't know and ends up stumbling through so much more of this through trial and error. And as I think about, and, and I have this, this th these two trajectories for both higher ed, as well as for the workplace, where if we think about student A, before they even show up on a college campus, they may have had a mentor or uh, a parent help them think through what is the role of higher education in one's life? How are you going to, what are the opportunities that will come your way? How do you take advantage of those opportunities, not just in school, but what clubs to join, 
who to meet, office hours with professors, recruiting events, picking the right major, picking the right classes that satisfy the right requirements so you're not switching around and potentially wasting time and credit hours. And when this student shows up on a campus, they're strategically taking advantage of all the opportunities that come their way. They're showing up at the activities fair. They're meeting upperclassmen who, by the way, one of the things that I didn't realize until I started looking back was as a freshman, the most, in terms of career, at least in life guidance, the most valuable people you can meet as a college freshman are the college seniors. Why? Because when you're a college junior senior, those students will be alums and they will be in positions to hire you. And who gets the upper hand in that? It's the people who came from feeder schools. Mm -hmm. It's the people who came from feeder schools. It's the people who can say, oh, you went to so-and-so prep school as well. I did too. Our parents happened to have been coworkers together at XYZ firm. Not a level playing field. Well, not a level playing field. So what about the, you know, the child of, of poverty or, or discrimination or, you know, new to, new to the, uh, to the United States in the case of American, uh, the American labor market, how do you, how do you help them to, to see the hurdles that they have to overcome that are different uh, and that require perhaps, you know, extraordinary effort to, to deal with the issue of compatibility because, you know, competence and commitment are in some ways easier to demonstrate than compatibility if, you know, your skin is a different color, your, your gender uh, identity is, 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 is not standard, or if your religion and the religious garb you, you wear, you know, makes you stand apart or whatever it is that might make compatibility problematic. So there are two ways that I think about this in the context of the three C's. The first is to lean into the C of compatibility by finding someone who has a shared background with you, who is in a position or who has led a career that you'd like to lead as well. So think to yourself, go on to LinkedIn. That's a great tool that is underutilized by college students and look for someone who went to the same school, had a similar major, similar extracurricular activities similar community service activities, maybe similar trajectory of switching from one major to another major. How would people find you on LinkedIn? What's that? Sorry. How would people find you on LinkedIn? I have an easily stockable name, Gorik Ng. That's G-O-R-I-C-K. And then last name is N-G. I'm an easy one to search up. Uh, But for, for those who don't even know necessarily who they should be searching up, going onto LinkedIn, looking at college alums, clicking on advance, clicking on all filters, And then looking at people who work at the places that you want to work at, went to the same schools, had the same hometown, went to the same study abroad experience. You're you're really looking for any area where you can say that you are a younger version of this other person. So that's one option is to really lean into finding someone who who can see you as, as someone that they'd like to take under their wing. The good thing about the FGLI acronym now is, is that it's an identity that people are increasingly proud of having. I think when I was first starting out, it wasn't something that I would, I would parade around. But now I was talking to a media executive the other day about how she was also first-generation low-income. And, yep. and, and she said that she wants to send the elevator back down for someone who is, who is coming from a background like hers. And in fact, she said that if only more of these people would reach out to her because all she gets instead are referrals from company vice presidents of, hey, my niece or nephew or so-and-so needs a job. Can you take a closer look at their resume? From and so-and-so private schools and et cetera. Exactly. <clears throat> and, the and so people and, and already so, have access to the, to, the, to the compatibility chain. Right. If you can find someone, so a, a, few, a few options, there are a number of nonprofits that are serving first-generation low-income students. Mm-hmm. There are Thrive Scholars, Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America, QuestBridge, and many others. Alums of these programs, I could imagine as being especially accessible if you are FGLI, because mm-hmm. you can reach out to them and say, like you, I am FGLI. So mm-hmm. the first path is to lean into the compatibility piece. In the absence of that, and, and, or, or in addition, rather, is to really lean into competence and, and, and commitment, where where 
the people who get in and get ahead are the persistent ones, are the proactive ones. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you an example of, of someone who unfortunately didn't end up making it into the book, but this is someone who didn't study entertainment or wasn't in touch with the media domain, but wanted to work in LA in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. What did this person end up doing? He, he invited himself to a graduate conference on media and entertainment, mm-hmm. went to that conference, sat strategically beside the people that he wanted to meet, went through the roster of speakers to see who he strategically wanted to be in close proximity with, introduced himself, sat down with them for lunch, striked up a conversation, knew how to tell his own story of where he was and where he wanted to go, sent a thank you email afterwards, which very few, if anyone does nowadays. Really? Come on. <laughs> I'll send you one, Stu, after this. Well, look I, out for it. I'll send you one too. But I mean, that's not like basic career training. I mean, certainly something we teach the Wharton kids. <laughs> you know, a lot of students have reached out saying that they went to the liberal arts college or they didn't go to the business school at their uh-huh. university. And so they actually didn't get many of us, much of this okay. training. All right. All right. Um, all right. And, so and you, sorry, please. No, no, so that this continue with the example of the, the guy who's now running Disney. <laughs> He's on his way for sure. Okay. Um, he, so he, he sent a thank you email. He followed up. He kept in touch with these individuals. And as he was making strides and getting jobs in media and entertainment on the business side, kept in touch, mm-hmm. forwarded along opportunities that may have been relevant to these individuals. Some of them didn't respond, but many of them did. And so he kept going and Five years later, five years, (laughs) talk about patience. One of these people reached out and asked him, hey, where are you these days? And what are you thinking about for next steps? He knew how to tell a story, which is a chapter Mm -hmm. in my book. Yes, very important one. um, and, and, And it just so happened that this person said, you know, what you want is exactly what I want to hire for right now. Send me your resume. Mm -hmm. There was no job posting. This was a position that was newly created. So what's the moral by clicking what's the moral of that story, Gork? And then we're going to take a short break. The moral of the story is that while you may be waiting at the front door, clicking that submit button to hundreds of resumes, someone else is crawling through the window mm-hmm. and building relationships behind the scenes with people who will bang the table for them to get that, that offer. And that happens as well for promotions as well. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Harvard's Gorik Eng about his book, The Unspoken Rules. There's so many of them in here. We obviously can't get to all of them, but uh, what a great resource for young people just starting out or really for anyone who's trying to help young people uh, start their career right. Um, the Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right. It's uh, it's very straightforward and very clear. Let's talk about the remote world because I know you have a lot of insight about that and include that in this great work about how you establish presence in virtual meetings. I'm particularly interested in one of the key lessons, uh, how you ask for help without looking lazy um, and, and what that looks like in today's world. Can, can you speak to that, Gork? Sure. It's one of the most common anxieties that I hear about from early career professionals. How do I ask questions without coming across as lazy or incompetent? Mm -hmm. And here I have really the, the, the unspoken rule or the mental model of do and show your homework. So what I hear from managers all the time is yes, they might have a habit of saying there's no such thing as a stupid question, but in reality, in the backs of their heads, there really are. They're the questions that you could have Googled for the answer to on your own. Now there are are stupid questions (laughs) is what you're saying. Am I right? These aren't my words. These are the words of managers that I've interviewed who, who have said, who have, who have told me that, that there's a, a tension between being efficient and being resourceful. So you want to show that you're being resourceful by saying, Stu, I'm trying to figure this thing out and this thing out. My suspicion is that we should go with paths A, B, and C. My hypothesis is that option B makes the most sense. What do you think? And this is also an unspoken rule around going to your manager with options and proposals instead of just open-ended questions like, what do I do next? Oh, my God. Say it again, Gorik. Say it again. Amen. I've been preaching that forever. (laughs) 
<laughs> come to me with your ideas and your recommendations. Give me something to react to. The head of a big law firm here in Philly taught me a long time ago this magical question. And that it was one that I hadn't really codified as, you know, just, just to reiterate and echo what you're saying. And the question is, what would you recommend? Like ask the person you're asking advice from or asking direction from to tell you what they recommend and what their reasoning is. It's such a straightforward and simple idea, but very few people live by it. And you just get so much information from people when you uh, just compel them to use their big brains to give you their, their thinking. Many people are afraid to give that thinking because they don't want to uh, give the wrong answer or be seen as uh, you know, too pushy. But, you know, you're getting paid for and people are going to see your value, your competence and indeed your commitment. If you if you show up with ideas, you know, I could be wrong, but this is what I think is best. And here's why. All right. I'm ranting. I'm ranting because you you touched a nerve with that one, Gorik. It's so important. Please. What do you think about what I'm saying here? I was talking to an engineering manager the other day and he said, I might give you a solution or assign you an assignment. But what I'm looking for is a solution to my problem. And what he meant by that is don't just take what I'm telling you at face value and as gospel, which was frankly what I did. My manager would say jump and I would say how high in the form of, hey, I want to slide on this. And I would say, okay, what do you want on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side? And I would follow his instructions to the T only for him to look at what I had done and say, "Mm, I'm not sure about this. Try again. Now, that's not very helpful feedback in retrospect. Uh, What he was asking for was for me to go to him with a proposal, which is, it -hmm. sounds like we're having a meeting with this client. It sounds like they're interested in this. We've done this so far. Would it make sense for me to put A or B together? I suspect B for these reasons. What are your reactions? If I had had someone tell me that, I would have saved so many late nights starting out. Yeah, which doesn't mean that, you know, you're being compelled to come up with uh, ideas or solutions that you don't know. It's just that you're offering your best thinking, you know, here's what I here's what I've come up with. I'm sure I don't have the full picture. But this is what I think is 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 best from what I can gather. What do you think? Right. Uh, Is 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 a is a very helpful bit of advice. So so how does that address the question of how you ask for help without seeming like you're incompetent or lazy? Let's let's close the loop on that and then we can move to the next topic before we have to wrap up. Sure thing. Well, when it comes to avoiding the perception of incompetence, it's to show that you have a point of view, that you're going from analyzing or just following instructions to synthesizing Mm -hmm. and from blindly following to steering. Mm -hmm. That's really what you're doing by showing your homework and doing your homework first, and then showing your homework second, that's on competence. And then on the laziness part, it's showing that whenever something comes up that you're going to use your head, that you're going to put forward a point of view and you're not just passing the issue as a pass through to your manager. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and that was the feedback that I got. uh, Was it (laughs) a year and a half into my job? I think it could have happened earlier. I think that's part of the motivation why I wrote this book is my manager walked me into a conference room. I thought I was getting fired. And he said, stop following instructions so closely. Mm. And I thought, what? Hmm. That's, this, would have, this would have been a professor's dream, right? To color within the lines, mm. to bubble in the right bubbles, to fill in the blanks accurately. He said, the first time I'm thinking about this problem is when I'm starting my meeting with you. The last time I'm thinking about this is when this meeting ends. Between this meeting and the next meeting, I'm relying on you to think on my behalf and to come right. to me with proposals and solutions. Use your freaking brain, dude. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll sort of point some fingers here and, and say that this isn't this is common sense looking back, but it's not common sense when you're in the situation because that's not how we're conditioned in, in school. And you're pointing your finger at me, Gorick. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing something right over there at Wharton. Uh, well, from what you said earlier. 
Um, you know, I've been trying, you know, to, to help people in my classes learn the kinds of things that you're teaching, but it isn't common in most school settings. Why is that? Why don't we teach people the unspoken rules? I, I'm losing cool. I'm losing count of the number of fingers I should be using to point uh, on this because if I think about the 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 testing culture perhaps that mm. has or the 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 assessment culture that has pervaded education more broadly I mean it's very much a matter of teaching to the test and so Elementary school is catering to middle school. Middle school is catering to high school. High school is catering to college. And what are colleges looking for? Well, they're looking for high SAT scores, ACT scores. They're looking for, cla- for, for high grades in certain classes. And so if the quote unquote customer on the other side is asking for a certain set of things, you're going to conform to what your customer wants as a supplier, quote unquote. And so it's, it's, at this point that we see this rift between school and work, because certainly there are many reasons why education exists to, to, to cultivate thoughtful, productive, active citizens in a democracy, certainly. But there is a point of view that a lot of first gens have as well, which is, hey, I'm not here necessarily just for the sake of intellectual stimulation. I'm here to lift the economic outcomes of myself and my family. family. And so- mm-hmm. And so to some degree, the, the end customer in a way of higher ed are the employers and the employers are asking for something very different from, okay, great. It's nice that you aced calculus, but I want to make sure that you can show up, you can manage expectations, you can take ownership. Yeah, that's very helpful. What, what's your favorite uh, word of advice about impressing a boss without being in person in 30 seconds, Gork? I would say help your manager achieve their aspirations and help them alleviate their desperations. What are they trying to achieve mm-hmm. and what are they struggling with? There's a hidden opportunity there to be a high performer. And how do you do that if, you, if you're never with them in person? I would pay attention. If, if you are in meetings with your manager, I would pay attention to what's being discussed, to what's not being discussed in terms of those nonverbal cues. I would pay attention as well to the email traffic, to their calendars, mm-hmm. and see what's wasting them time, what's causing them stress, what can I take on that would be useful. And mm-hmm. it actually is, and, and, it, and when in doubt, there's a line in my book that is a very simple one. It's, how can I be helpful? Or what can I do to be helpful? Yeah. Or to go to your manager with proposals and solutions, say, I noticed blank. Mm-hmm. Would it be helpful if I did blank? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> that's very wise and really not that hard to do once you put your mind in that frame of, I'm not here just to take orders. I'm here to initiate, to steer, as you say, and synthesize and steer. Those are good ways to think about it uh, for sure. And this, there's so much more here um, that we're not going to have time to get into in The Unspoken Rules, your wonderful new book. Um, what, what's the most important thing that you want readers to take away from it? For the managers, it's that high performers can be developed. They're not necessarily born. Mm-hmm. And my call to action is to take a closer look at how you're onboarding people, how you're developing people, how you even run your meetings. There are many unspoken expectations, hidden expectations that Some will know intuitively coming into your workplace. Others just don't know what they don't know. And it's not a matter of them being incompetent. It's Mm -hmm. a matter of them not being aware that these unspoken rules even exist. To the individual, Mm -hmm. I would say that for every written rule or spoken rule is a set of unspoken rules and unwritten rules. An easy way to uncover some of these unspoken, unwritten rules is to identify someone that you look up to that you see as a role model and see how they navigate systems, processes, meetings, emails. Someone who ideally can relate to you in terms of personal identity as well, because there are a lot of double standards, unfortunately, as it relates to gender, which we, we didn't quite get a chance to talk about, but that are pervasive in the workplace. But 
someone who's been in your shoes before can tell you a lot about what you need to do as well to get to where they are. You know, I, I often hear though that people who are, you know, um, in, in a distinctive social or demographic category get overwhelmed by the, you know, the request for support, sponsorship, mentorship from people who are coming up. How do you help those folks who feel that way, um, mm-hmm. you know, manage the, uh, you know, this yet another source of, of, of pressure on them to, to, you know, to just do more um, when they're already trying to, you know, make their way as executives, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, uh, any, any quick advice on that, on that score? I'd want to find a way to clone these people because the fact that <laughs> the, the supply of mentors is outstripped by the demand for mentors is a sign that you're doing work that many other people could be taking on and probably yeah. wouldn't want to take on. There just aren't the systems and processes in place. And of course, there are, there are many benefits to being in that role for yourself, not just for the next generation that you're aiming to cultivate, uh, because you're then seen as, as, a, as a giving uh, person who is somebody that other people are going to trust and want to do business with. And, uh, it, you know, it's a win for everyone. So, yeah, cloning, uh, I'll take that as a metaphor for, you know, just generating a greater sense of a commitment to the process of mentoring. We are out of time, Gorik. Thank you so much for being my guest here uh, today. What can uh, listeners do to find out more about the great work that you're doing? Appreciate that, Stu. The best way is to go onto my website, which is gorik.com. That's G-O-R-I-C-K.com. And I'm especially active on LinkedIn. So feel free to follow and especially connect with me there. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Gorik. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Stu. And thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard here on the show, just email me, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Hey, I'm there too, and I do respond, especially to listeners. Uh, Go to totalleadership.org to find out more about the other stuff we're doing, including free videos and book chapters and articles and such. Thanks, Patty Hall, for making it all happen. Thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.